Tēnā koutou no mai hai to my welcome to Q&A, I'm Jack Tame. Today, three weeks from the election, we ask if New Zealand is a good place to raise kids and if our major party's policies are enough to help families doing it tough. But on a, on a systems level, on a structural level, it is a constant fight. Everything is a fight and it shouldn't be that way. There's increasing concern from experts about the damage extreme online pornography is doing to our young people. So where's the policy debate? And then, a bit later, sod softness, Judith Collins gets tough again. You know, my view is that right now, tax cuts, they're simply irresponsible. Well, give it back then. We will discuss that shortly. Three years ago, Labor came into government promising to lift 100,000 Kiwi kids out of poverty in its first term. Social agencies say although progress has been made in some areas, Labor overpromised and underdelivered. And of course, COVID-19 is making things a whole lot worse for low-income New Zealanders. Even before the pandemic, Statistics New Zealand recorded 151,000 Kiwi kids living in what it calls material hardship. So in families that can't afford trips to the dentist or the doctor or to provide their children with more than one pair of shoes. We're going to begin our coverage in the classroom. Here's reporter Sonia Wilson. Katie Pennicott has been an educator for 22 years. She's written the book on teaching, literally four of them. She has two Prime Minister's Awards for Educational Excellence. And now here at West Auckland's Sunnyvale Primary, she's principal in charge of about 500 kids, many from families who struggle to make ends meet. A lot of children are living in garages or whole families in sleep out. Some children do live in cars, some people move from home to home. That is really tough and they have wonderful parents and we have a wonderful community. But I know that people are doing it tough and that the impacts of COVID-19 have only exacerbated that. Katie and her team feed around 120 of their kids every day. Morning tea, lunch and afternoon tea, some of that food is paid for by Kids Can, the rest comes out of the teachers' own pockets. Yes, one of the TAs did the carrots and some of the, the other girls will pop in and what do you need? And they'll go off and pick up fruit, bread, spreads. So if it wasn't for the whole team, there's just no way. Yeah. There's not enough money out in her school's community. There's not enough money coming inside the gates either. It's like a constant fight. And it's not a fight with my wonderful staff. My staff are wonderful, my kids are wonderful, my community is wonderful, I love my school. But on a systems level, on a structural level, it is a constant fight. Everything is a fight. I can take you outside and show you six classrooms that haven't been touched since they were built in 1962. I can show you substandard buildings. And then we can go up the road and see a school that is brand new that just got given $11 million and I'm fighting for 50000 to fix a rotten roof. Um, that inequity is everywhere and it is a constant fight. Housing is an issue for families here, affordable transport, food security, a number of stresses that means learning can't happen like it should. The facts don't stick in the brains of tired and stressed kids. If you're hungry, cold, tired, your brain goes back to your reptilian brain and you can't learn, you can't think, you can't operate at your most optimal level. So all of those things are impacted. And we have intergenerational poverty in New Zealand. So that is from generation to generation to generation. 
I won't stop fighting because these kids deserve excellence and I'm going to keep working until I can give them everything I can, possibly. Um, but it is a constant fight and it shouldn't be that way. The need is huge. Many students require extra support, but accessing it can be really tough. Agency fatigue, she says, is rife. And what that means is you go from one agency to another trying to seek the support that you need um, and referral after referral and each one refers you on and passes the buck and you don't fit this criteria and you don't fit that criteria and it just gets exhausting. If we could cut down on all of that, cut down on the way that people have to go from this place to this place to this place, um, that would be a big step in the right direction. This is not the problem of one school in West Auckland either. Far from it. Poverty, Katie Pinnacott says, is everybody's problem. Understand that every child is someone's son or daughter. Every person is someone's auntie, friend, nana, mother, sister, brother. And when you really think about that properly, you stop doing what we call othering, as in thinking of those people over there, not me. Um, and that is a real systemic problem in New Zealand. Those people that sit around and think it's just those people over there, they really need to reconceptualise that and think a bit more deeply. Everybody has the potential, but if you're not starting from the same place, if you're starting from systems and structures grounded in inequity, then you know the possibilities are different. And we have to address that as a country. Um, and the only way we can address that as a country is through structural, true structural change based on cultural shift. According to this principle, we need to think big. I'm not a sociologist, you know, I don't know the flash words for that, but the, the response in our country is to pour money or policy at a situation and then expect the results that are predetermined to prove that that worked. But it doesn't. It doesn't make any difference. Until those power structures are challenged and changed, um, then things will stay the same. Policy perpetuates what we currently have, which is inequity in our society, um, and until those things are addressed. You know, the Treaty of Waitangi promised equity for all, and we're still waiting for that. Sonia Wilson with that report. We're going to take a close look at this issue this morning. Labor and Nationals' respective social development spokespeople, Carmel Sipaloni and Louise Upston, are with us. Kia ora kōrua. Carmel, I will start with you. You've been watching that story. Do you feel a sense of shame to be living in a country where teachers and teacher aides are spending their own money to feed children because so many kids are coming to school hungry? Oh, look, firstly, can I just acknowledge that principle and the work that she's doing? Uh, the school is actually in my electorate and so I do understand that it isn't just unique to that one particular school, that um, poverty is real in this country uh, and as she said it's everybody's responsibility. Uh, since we got into government we've been taking very serious steps towards addressing child poverty uh, but it was never going to be one action that was going to be able to resolve the issue that is at hand. And so some of the steps we have taken are significant, but there's more to do, Jack, and uh, we've never uh, resolved from the fact mm. that there is more, and we have got a plan. We've put it out there very clearly. OK, we'll get to your plan in a moment. Louise, how do you feel watching that story? Do you feel a sense of shame? 
Well, <clears throat> like Carmel, I want to acknowledge the principle, um, as she is like many across the country. Uh, I think the reality is, though, unfortunately, we've seen child poverty uh, go backwards. Um, the measure that is the most significant for the actual lives of these children is the material hardship measure. Uh, and we have seen, before COVID, over 12,000 more children living in material hardship. Uh, so we are going backwards, unfortunately. OK, if you're in government for the next three years, how many Kiwi kids will you lift out of poverty? Well, when we did, when we were in government, we lifted 160,000 children out of poverty. Um, so we actually think that the current government's um, goals aren't next three ambitious, years? Next three aren't years, ambitious what would you do? enough. Um, well, clearly, we have to look at now. We are facing uh, an economic crisis of incredible mm. proportions. Um, but we will focus primarily on material hardship. How many kids out of material hardship well, within we, three years? We'll do, we'll do better than the current How government, many which has gone backwards in 12,000. OK, so we're at 151,000, according to Statistics New Zealand, before the pandemic. After three years, how many Kiwi kids will be in material hardship? Well, first of all, we have to look at... You're not no, giving no. me a number. I'm just going to hold on to you. Because, I, okay, because why aren't what you gonna we have to do is, first of all, address the economic issues. Our focus is going to be getting parents into jobs, getting the economy back on a level okay. footing. At the end of the day, any of the policies that we want to support that will assist children directly need a stronger economy. And, and we're going to focus on the issues that make the biggest difference to those children. OK. You're, I'm going to get to some of your plans in a moment. But, right. I, but I want to target here, because, because you, yours is the government that, that plays such an importance on, on targets through which we could measure yeah. success or failure of policies. You've criticised this government for what you say is putting more, more kids into material hardship. I, I want a number. After well, three years well, in been, government, 151,000 before the pandemic, how many after the national we've government? We've got a track record. In four years, we lifted 160,000 okay. children out of You haven't given me a number, so I'm going to cut you off. Sorry. Can Carmel Cipollone, yeah. how many, how many kids will you lift? No, well, how many kids will you lift out of poverty? Going back. Can I just okay. say that, that National did support the child poverty reduction targets that we've set in our legislation, and they remain the targets. Those so, are for 10 years. And we that, said they weren't ambitious enough okay. at the time. So, so for, in three so, years' time, please just answer this question, in three years' time, how many Kiwi kids will be lifted out of poverty so we, and take their material If we look figure? at the first target in terms of uh, before housing costs, um, where the first target was to reduce it from 16 to 10%, which would see 70,000 children less in poverty. Um, and so that is one of the measures. And I would hope that National continue to be committed uh, to those child poverty reduction targets. There's a reason that they're in legislation, uh, and that is because we have to take it seriously as a country. OK, 151,000 kids in material hardship before this pandemic if you're in government for another three years, how many kids will be lifted out of material hardship at the end of that term? I think the material hardship measure in the poverty reduction legislation was a reduction from about 13% to 10% of what it currently is. And so those are the targets that are in legislation uh, and we need to just continue Within to focus three years. those and the Prime on Minister those. And the Prime Minister promised she would lift 30,000 out of material hardship by 2021. That we've was the commitment okay. they made. 18, we've already seen 18,000 already, a reduction in children that are living in poverty. Uh, in the material last, hardship. The last 
last information that came out in February showed that, that we are actually making progress in seven out of nine okay. of the indicators. We've got to continue making progress. Okay, okay. We're going to continue this debate in a couple of moments and look at some of the solutions. And then Labor and National clash over their respective farming policy. Our panel has its take coming up. There are certain things that the government has done which have certainly been helpful, um, but tinkering around their edges will not change this big stubborn problem we've got of child poverty. We need transformational change. It's too early to tell how the current government has done on child poverty, but I think it's fair to say that to a certain extent they've overpromised and underdelivered. Okay, that is Child Poverty Action with its assessment of the government's performance over the last three years. I want to talk about incomes, Louise Upston and Carmel Cipolloni. Louise, you have both been on the solo parent benefit at one point in your life. What was your biggest stress at that time? Well, uh, um, I I'm, would have to be honest and say those were the toughest times of my life. Uh, and I think because it was so difficult, I was more determined to get off it. Uh, and that's really what drives my motivation for supporting um, people off benefit and into work, even if that work is only a couple of hours a week to begin with. So, so you it didn't need the... an incentive to get off government help? Absolutely. No, I, 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 I hated the fact that I didn't feel as if I had choices in my life uh, and, and I hated the feeling that I, mm. I wasn't in, in, in charge and, and I felt by getting a job I would have more opportunities and more choices and I would do better for myself and my son. Kama, what was your biggest stress at that time? I think, you know, for me, when I was on the sole parent benefit or the DPB at the time, uh, I was studying full time. And, uh, you know, it's not a lot of money to live off, uh, but the additional costs that came with studying, you know, childcare, uh, transport to and from, the additional mm. kind of course costs that might not be covered by a loan, uh, were certainly stresses for me. Uh, but I was very fortunate at that time because the training incentive was in place and it made a massive difference uh, to me being able to get on, get that degree and get into work. Whether it's the job seeker benefit or the or the solo benefit, uh, solo parent benefit, do benefits at their current levels provide families enough income support for New Zealanders to live with dignity? Oh, certainly income adequacy, as we have said, uh, the whole time that we're in is an issue for those on benefit. Does that is, mean no? It is not a lot of money. That is the reality. Is it enough money to live with dignity? Most New Zealanders would struggle to live on the amount that you get through the benefit. And so um, I will say um, that there is a lack of dignity um, trying to live off that amount of money, particularly when you have children or you have housing costs mm -hmm. like you do in places like Auckland and other parts of the country. Uh, and that is why we've progressively been trying to address the income adequacy okay, issues. Okay, okay, let's look at that then. You commissioned a working group to report on social security in New Zealand. That yes. report, the WEAG report, was delivered to your government 18 months ago. One of the central recommendations was that your government immediately lifts benefits 12 to 47 per cent. Why didn't you? Look, we did lift benefits, Jack. So you I didn't immediately lift point. benefits? No, you only lifted them after COVID-19, and I know that you've increased an incremental percentage benefit, but, but you were told by that report to immediately lift 
core benefits 12 to 47% and you didn't. Why not? We couldn't do everything immediately. Why not? But we have done that, Jack. Why so didn't you do it? We've done it, Jack. Why didn't we you did do it? it? We did it in it April. We not only did that, we indexed benefits to wages. That makes a huge difference. We lifted the abatement threshold so, you, so people could earn a little bit so more. So you waited a year for a global pandemic and then used it as an opportunity to raise benefits, $25 a week. The recommendation was 12 to 47% immediately from the report that you commissioned. Why didn't you increase them immediately? It didn't happen, Jack, immediately, but it did no, happen I know it didn't happen, year. but why not? I've, I was sitting here a year ago asking, yeah you the same thing yeah. answer me this question why didn't you increase because them we couldn't do everything immediately jack why let not me say, let me just say that there are a number of other things that are pointed out in the WEAG uh, report that are comprehensive. Things like increasing public housing, which we have done, which we've shifted on, uh, expanding employment services, providing more uh, proactive uh, labour market mm. and policies around getting people into upskilling and training and work. Those things we have already uh, got underway well and truly. Yeah. And so it's not just lifting benefits that we were asked to do. But that's a central that report, recommendation Jack. of that report. I mean, what is the point in commissioning a report if you don't then take the advice? You, you have acted swiftly when it comes to supporting businesses in the face of a global pandemic. You're happy to, to put in billions of dollars into the, into the economy there. You've acted swiftly to ban guns. So, you, so you've shown a capacity to act quickly when you needed to. When you were recommended by your report to immediately increase benefits 12 to 47%, when you yourself say it isn't enough money to live with dignity, why didn't you do it? Jack, there are 42 recommendations recommendations in that report, 22 uh, there is work underway on in terms of those recommendations. We didn't lift benefits immediately but we did in April this year alongside other significant shifts as well. Louise have you read that report? Yes, and actually the Prime Minister said on Tuesday that 22 of those recommendations have been implemented already. No, she didn't. She said she was working, that work was underway in 22 of those recommendations, but I will note that only three of those recommendations have come into force to this point. Why hasn't your boss read that report? Uh, well, I think she relies on people like me to do the detailed work in social development, and that's what I've done. But, I mean, let's consider the social welfare and benefit payments make up the single biggest expense for a government. She wants to be Prime Minister. Why on earth wouldn't you read a report of that magnitude? Well, she's aware of what the, some of the recommendations were and she's aware of what our responses would be uh, and the clear difference between Labor and National. Uh, Labor's focused on uh, the numbers on beneficiaries, on benefits. National's clearly focused on getting people into work, even if, if, if to begin with, that work is part-time, because at the end of the day, the more Kiwis who have work, who have opportunities, will have higher incomes, and that's the key point. Benefits at their current level, are, are they enough for New Zealanders to live with dignity? Um, they are challenging. It's challenging to live is on that a, a benefit, no? which is why our focus is on getting more people into work. OK. Would you increase benefits? Uh, we would have lifted them temporarily, like we did in the Canterbury earthquakes. Uh, we lifted them for the first time in 43 years. Uh, so we have would a track record three of years lifting in them already. Okay, we, gonna, we, know that, we know that large numbers of New Zealanders are going to be without jobs, at least in the short term. Unemployment is spiking as a result of COVID-19. Over the next three years, would you increase core benefits? Our focus would be getting those people the ability to get a job. We don't see... I'm sorry, you're not answering my well, question. I, I don't want to focus. interrupt you both, but... Our okay, focus so, so is, is that a no? Our focus is on jobs. Our focus is on jobs. People will have Did higher incomes 
if they're if they've work. got a job. Yeah, exactly. Yep. But but if they're not, if they don't, if they if they can't get a job in the face of a you know in, in the fallout from a global pandemic, they they can't expect a benefit increase under a national government. I just want to be clear. Not on at that. this stage, no. Okay. Jack, our focus is on jobs. You know, we've been very clear that the infrastructure projects that we're investing in are about ensuring New Zealand is better placed and also the creation of mm. jobs. Uh, the investment in employment programmes at MSD uh, have increased significantly, even prior to COVID. Uh, we increased the number of frontline work-focused case managers uh, because of recommendations that came out of the WEAG around the need to expand the employment support that we provide. So we're absolutely focused on that and upskilling and training. But should there were 30,000 more people on JobSeeker Benefit before COVID. Should there be so a I'm limit? not sure your results actually uh, ring true. Should there be a limit on how long someone can stay on a job, uh, on, on a benefit? Look, first and foremost, I, I think we have to recognise that the vast majority of people who access support from the welfare system and go on benefit are like me and Louise. Mm. They actually are passing through. It's a moment where they need support and their intention is to go on and work. So that has to be the starting point rather than assuming that um, people have a desire to be welfare dependent. That's not my starting point at all. Okay, let me ask you about incentives then. Why are you charging people for emergency housing? Look, you know, that actually came out of conversations with the community housing provider network uh, who said that there were inconsistencies between emergency accommodation, transitional and public. Mm. And at times it was really difficult to move people from emergency accommodation into transitional because of the fact that emergency housing was free as opposed to the 25% uh, income related amount that they'd be paying if they were in transitional uh, or in public. People want to live in motels. Oh look, no, people don't choose to be homeless. Uh, however, we need to support people to be able to move through and get into more secure housing. And of course, it's a disincentive if you're not mm. paying anything in emergency accommodation, mm. particularly for those that are on low income. I want to talk about housing in a couple of minutes. Louise, another question for you. You have pledged to reinstate the sanction on solo mothers who don't name the father of their child and are claiming a benefit. How does that not punish the child? Yeah, so this, this, this obligation is clear uh, and it's actually about ensuring that the dads of those children are financially responsible for their children rather than expecting taxpayers to pick up so the what tab. So what if, what if the mother doesn't do it? What's the impact on the child? So currently there's a number of exemptions in place, as you would expect. Uh, if there's an issue of violence or threats to the mother, uh, actually if the mother doesn't know biologically who the father is. So there's clear exemptions that are in place at the moment. But there are hundreds of thousands of dads who are financially responsible for their kids. So why should this group of dads be any different? But you see how this punishes the child, right? It, the, 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 the child's mother makes a decision and it's, in the end, the child that has less money going into their life. Well, there's an obligation in place, just like we accept there right. are obligations throughout the social security system, um, and so, there so is a sanction. So should we just get the kids to ask There's their a sanction or a consequence. Well, actually, taxpayers should be asking and should be being very clear about the fact that they expect dads to be financially responsible for uh, their that's kids. That's well and good for taxpayers to expect that, but it's not the child's responsibility. No, but... It's not. We, we want to ensure that parents play their role in a child's life, mm. actually that they have a connection to their children. Mm. Um, and by removing any obligation for that to occur, you're actually preventing the child potentially having a relationship throughout their life 
with their father, and we oh. don't think that's good. Okay, send us your thoughts. We're on Twitter at NZQ&A. You can post on Facebook or email us Q&A at tvnz.co.nz. We've got to focus on some solutions and wrap this debate after the break. And then... Too many Māori, aided by a small minority of workers, fellow traveller elites, cannot shift their mindset. Winston Peters uses a speech at Orewa to criticise Māori. Sound familiar? But is it enough to lift his party as New Zealand first languishes in the polls? Hoki Mai and all, we're back with Carmel Cipolloni and Louise Upston. We know that housing is a major driver of inequality in New Zealand. Louise, your party would scrap the healthy homes standards, or some of them at least. Just this week, um, Barfoot and Thompson, along with doctors and health groups, have called on you to stick with the legislation for the sake of poor families. I'm going to throw you a quote here um, from Kitty Barfoot. Healthier homes mean children get a good night's sleep and then turn up to school and get an education. People don't get so sick. So we introduced the healthy home standards. So the legislation that was passed was predominantly our legislation. Where there are a few changes are around um, detailed rules and regulations around the, the heating um, equipment, mm. uh, which we think are a bit onerous. Okay. So they it, just, it's, they not, disagree. it's not correct to say uh, that we are scrapping the healthy home standards. There's a few right. minor areas that we wanted to change. Okay, and, and they are urging you not to change them. They're urging you to keep them because they say that, that child welfare should trump anything when it comes to concerns about burdens on landlords. So what is well, your response? We want to them that? to be in homes though. So if we have a situation that we've seen under Labor where rents are going up $50 a week because of every additional <coughs> rule and regulation, Actually, that's not good for that child. So, yeah, we want to make sure that the rules are sensible and are not preventing uh, more homes being available it, for rent, it, and, and rents um, need to is stop Is it climbing. sensible to have Kiwi kids in houses where they are contracting rheumatic fever? No, so as I said, we introduced the healthy home standards. But you're it scrapping some of these laws, you see what they're I'm minor, saying? They're minor elements, and I think it's really uh, important for people to understand that. Um, the majority of the healthy homes legislation was ours to begin with. We drafted it. It's been passed under Labor. Uh, we want to make sure that the rents don't continue to climb. Uh, and there's a number of changes in the Residential Tenancy Act that Labor have made uh, changes to that mm. we want to get rid of because they are making it more difficult for people to have houses available for rent. We've got 20,000 mm. people on the uh, social housing register um, that we need to make sure are moving into rental properties. Carmel Cipollone, your government, of course, uh, came in promising an ambitious um, program under Kiwi Build that has fallen by the wayside. In the, in the wake of a global pandemic, once again, the housing market is booming. What impact is that going to have on inequality and what is your government doing about it? Look, our focus has been on increasing public housing. And, you know, when we came into government, we came in at a time when National had sold off mm. um, thousands of state houses. We've rebuilt that stock. Ones. We've rebuilt that stock. So we have five and a half thousand additional public housing spaces, uh, as well as three and a half thousand transitional uh, housing spaces. Why has the waiting list for social housing increased so much under your government? It's 20,000 at the moment. Oh, people are coming forward. We're not stopping them from going on the register if they feel that they need to go on the register or they're experiencing hardship. That's a vast number. 
number. It is a vast number, um, but we didn't create this need, Jack. We came into government and the need was there. But we know that we know that housing drives inequality. And, and, Absolutely. And that, and that the housing market at the moment is going gangbusters despite the global economy tanking. Mm -hmm. So I want to know, what are the significant policies that are going to address that inequality when it comes to housing over the next three We've years? We've got to continue the build. And we already committed this year to 8,000 more uh, public and transitional housing spaces. That is what it has to happen. But I mean, aren't we going to end up with a society where we have people who are either in public or transitional housing or people who own 10 houses? Oh, look, this has got to be our starting point. Many of us started or grew up, we're born into state houses, uh, and that was our hand up. It was secure, sustainable housing. And then many of us, me for instance, had parents who moved out of the state house and into a private home ownership. But it was a foot in the door and secure housing means kids are going to school. Um, well, we all agree secure housing is important, but can we build our way out of this problem? We've got to continue to try, uh, and we're absolutely But there are committed. other solutions. We are absolutely committed to continuing to build, and I think that that's a very clear uh, differential between us and the National I mean, Party. People will look at you and say you were committed to building three years ago when you said that 16,000 Kiwi-built homes would be, re would be finished by the end of this term, and, and you have failed on that front. But I want to look at other solutions. Why can't we, why can't we act faster? On, on poverty and child poverty in New Zealand. Like I said, if we are able to pump billions of dollars into the economy to support businesses, we're able to ban guns effectively overnight in New mm. Zealand, why do we have plans that last for 10 years? Why can't we just pump vast sums of money into, into managing inequity in New Zealand? I want to just point out, Jack, that the 1.7 million jobs that the wage subsidy supported uh, actually were jobs of New Zealanders, many of them with children. Uh, and so you may not see it as a, a, a response to poverty or to ensure that families don't go into poverty, but for us it certainly I, no, was. No, I agree, I agree. Yeah. But, but I'm talking about the speed with which you're acting. Yeah. And, and you, you've set some plans for over 10 years for mm. reducing child poverty in New Zealand. I want to know why we can't be more ambitious, why we can't get more done within a shorter time frame. And I think that's always the criticism, the pace at which we can work. Mm. Uh, and, but when we reflect back, we look at, you know, within the first 100 days we had the families package. That was a $5.5 billion investment. Uh, we have made significant shifts like introducing Best Start, the winter energy payment, indexing benefits to wages, lifting benefits, mm. shifting the abatement thresholds, expanding employment services, expanding upskilling and training opportunities like Manaramahi and the Apprenticeship Boost. So those things are significant, Jack, but we will never pretend that there isn't more to do. Louise, why can't we move faster? So the Resource Management Act is the biggest barrier in terms of getting more houses built. Um, that was probably the biggest frustration for me what, in What about in the, overall, the overall well, we issue, need, though? Yeah, we need the RMA to be gone to be able to build more houses. So the and RMA is the solution to, to, to that's, poverty that's, in New Zealand? No, you were, you were we're talking about housing. Sorry, I'm talking now about, about okay. the overall issue. How, why can't we move faster in, in addressing the inequality? Yeah, so, so our focus um, is actually investing early for families in the first thousand days. So we've said we want to support families mm. in the time that's critical, uh, and that's to allow up to $3,000 for every child um, to support them in making making decisions, accessing supports that they need, whether it's parenting, education, uh, it might be as a household, they have higher needs and they get access to up to $6,000 of services. We're investing in those first thousand days because the evidence says that's what has the greatest impact on the outcomes of that child, whether it's health, 
whether it's education or whether it's justice. You also so that's say it's where jobs, we're we're, right? we're we're prioritising mm. uh, in the in terms of children and their welfare and their life outcomes in the first thousand days. Okay, I'm going to give you each a final comment here. I want to know over the next three years, what are the policies that are going to make the biggest difference to low-income New Zealanders if you are in government? There is no one policy that will make a significant enough uh, difference. What we need is a plan. Our government's been very clear about what our plan is. It is about investing in people. It is about jobs, jobs, jobs. It's about preparing for the future. Give me some policies, supporting not just the Supporting small businesses and also, of course, positioning ourselves on the global stage. Uh, we've announced already as part of uh, the investment in social development a $1 billion investment, uh, which is all around about supporting people to get into work as well as supporting, you know, like our sole parents, disabled people, to be able to take up study, to ensure that they have the opportunity to get ahead, as well as investing to support people, mm. to be able to work part-time, earn a little bit more, uh, and not be punished uh, by having a huge reduction in their benefit. Part-time work is a pathway to full-time employment. So the investments that we have put in place will not only help get us through COVID, but see us better placed as a country at the end of this. Okay, Louise Upston, over well, the next three years, what are the policies that will make the big, biggest difference to low-income New Zealanders? Yeah, so, so clearly it's their, it's their incomes, their ability to have a job. We need to focus on the economy, which is why National's got a very clear five-point plan. Uh, one of the initial ones is for them to keep more of what they earn. So in terms of that tax relief, they've earned an income. We want them to keep more of it because in terms of day-to-day -day costs, that's what will make the biggest difference to them. $8 a week. Come on. Up come to on. Three, if you are up earning, to $3,000, Jack, you are, it is better than nothing. Wage it is, and you're working 40 hours a week, yeah. your tax relief will give someone $8 a week. Give me more than or give me it's, almost 60 It's money you've earned. It's, it's money, eight bucks. It's money that New Zealanders have earned, and we think they deserve to keep it mm. and spend in a way that they choose. And the first 1,000 days investment uh, for every child up to the age of three we think that will make the biggest long-term impact um, on children in this country and their, and their outcomes All for right. life. Okay, we have to end things there. Louise Upson, Kamal Sipaluni, tēnā kōrua. Thank you for your time. Our panel is in after the break. And then, extreme pornography has never been easier to access. Should we be doing more to protect young people? Welcome back and kia ora or talofa to our panel this morning, Unionist and former MP Lala Hare and Palmerston North lawyer and National Party member Liam here. Great to have you with us. I want to pick up um, off the back of our uh, debate over inequity in New Zealand. Liam, are you seeing anything from the two major parties that you think will make a substantial difference to the lives of low-income New Zealanders? Certainly not in the short term, um, you know, and it was a frustrating interview in that regard. Um, you know, one of the, the big things, of course, is that the cost of housing is a massive driver of, uh, of, of child poverty, and uh, there's no solution on the horizon for that. Well, Labor says they'll build. That's their solution at the moment. I think they said that three years ago as well. Lila, what were your impressions? Well, of I think you asked the sort of key question at the end, which is why um, can't we act faster, or why, why do they feel they can't act faster on these issues? And I think the answer to that is essentially political, that we have now you know, seen this massive shift in um, wealth within our society um, into assets like houses, 
And so our traditional ways of redistributing through income taxes and, you know, a reasonable mm. level of benefits can't continue um, to, to feed the system. And the lack of any kind of asset taxes, the lack of any sort of wealth taxes is a huge barrier to the ability to raise the funds to do the redistribution that's needed. And, you know, frankly, I think both Labor and National, but Labor, I guess, has a, a higher obligation as the party for ordinary working people, have really failed to bring um, that message clearly to the public and to and to move the centre voter. This election, mm. most elections are about the centre voter, and so that's why they can't do it quick enough, not because it's not possible to do what it. What does or that not say about our society? I mean, you, you, watch, you watch that story, and yeah, a school in West Auckland where teachers and teacher aides, hardly on vast incomes themselves, mm. are spending their own money because they know that the kids that they are teaching are turning up with empty bellies. Well, and the absurd thing is that National's so-called yeah. tax cut policy is directed at, you know, teachers, nurses, um, high, relatively high earners and very high earners, mm. you know, who are looking at getting a gain. That is actually not the gain they're looking for. They're looking for a gain in you know, the ability of the services that they work mm. in, the public sector to actually deliver good support. Mm. Um, I mean, the, the you, you ask that question, you know, what are either party doing? Well, Labor's got a pretty long shopping list of things that it's done to alleviate poverty over the last three years. It's got another shopping list of stuff which mm. it's promising to mm. do in the future. National won't even increase the minimum wage next, okay, next yeah. year. That's a $44 loss to a full-time minimum wage Yeah, in, in fairness, um, the National Party tax cut is not meant to be a child poverty reduction. No, they say... And I know that Louise brought it up, which was probably I know. a mistake. It's, but it's, it's an is, economic stimulus. It's an economic stimulus, and that's why it's temporary. But it's not mm. an economic stimulus. Well, that's a separate, but that's no, a separate no, no, question, no. Lila. That's a, not, I know you don't I, like it, but it's a separate I question. I the label they've given it, but there is no okay. evidence at all... But that is a separate question. OK, 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 watch this clip. This will stimulate the economy. OK, we can debate that. We can go into... the. The, the intricacies of Keynesian economics uh, at a later point, but I want to I pick up on something that came up at Tuesday night's leaders' debate. Let's have a look at this exchange. And now I've got dairy farmers saying to me, young dairy farmers saying, I'm only a dairy farmer, because they feel that they have, have got the weight of the world so, on them. So how okay. do we get this right? Sorry, yeah, Jacinda Ardern. Okay. Our dairy no, sorry, Judith Collins, Jacinda Ardern. I, if I may, that feels to me like the view of a world that has passed. <laughs> when I meet with our dairy sector, and I have to say... Our primary producers as a sector I've probably met with more than any other because of this important work. They absolutely see the need for us to be competitive in this environment. Now, Liam, uh, National has uh, battered Jacinda Ardern with, about those comments over the last couple of days and we've seen uh, farming policies from both parties. Are you sensing a stoking of the so-called urban-rural divide? Oh, look, oh, definitely. Look, in, you know, disclosure of interest, my parents are, you know, have a small dairy farm and um, I sat with them watching um, that debate. And, um, you know, the Prime Minister's comments, um, you know, they, they, they weren't um, what they've been framed to, to be, um, but they were incredibly uh, clumsy. I mean, Judith Collins talked at length about how p farmers were feeling beat up 
and uh, you know, and that you, really we should be feeling proud of farmers, and children should feel, feel, should feel proud of farmers. And the prime minister mm. let, let off clumsily saying that uh, that was an outdated view. And I know that's not what she meant, but it sounded so tin-eared. It, it, mm. it was really a binders full of women um, sort of moment from the Prime Minister. It was bad communication. Well, it's interesting to see how um, those comments of uh, Jacinda Ardern's were then interpreted by some National Party supporters. And let's have a look at uh, the meme that was posted by uh, MPs Matt King and Harete Hipango. Dairy farming is a world of the past. Now, that clearly wasn't what Jacinda Ardern said. That was presented as a direct quote by two MPs. Is that fair play, love? Well, two things here. One is that National are on a mission of these, um, these lies, really, in terms of their social media strategy. And I think that it's pretty appalling that they're not being pulled up on this by ad, you know, the Advertising Complaints Authority, um, by their own party leadership. In fact, party leader this week endorsed you know, a, a barefaced and very um, provocative set of, of, of um, tweets by mm. one of their MPs. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that I think what we've seen this week from National is that it's absolutely retreating to the very you know, its basic trench. Where is it in Auckland? It, you know, Judith Collins didn't even make it to Hamilton when she was in the Waikato. She's on the West Coast. She's in Morrinsville. She's not trying to win this election because she is simply okay. trying to hold on to a base national vote and she'll do it with these kind of provocative... Um, statements about about yeah. the rural there's a bit there's a bit more to it than that because while farmers aren't going to vote for the Labour Party in any great numbers there'll always be some that do um, farming uh, farmers are popular in the country and farmers are trusted and liked and they you know they're seen as uh, they are seen as an important part of the community um, so if the government if the National Party can frame the government as being against farming um, that does uh, that does have effects beyond the rural world a little bit. All right, so I think there's a little bit more to it than simple base mm. retrenchment. Although, you know, it certainly does do that as well. Do you think, I think Judith Collins a lot to do with the act vote? Yeah, okay, we'll get to the act vote in just a moment. <laughs> do, do you think Judith Collins should have reprimanded her MPs over sharing that? Yeah, think I, it look, look, it was not. It was. It was a. Um, it was a misleading framing of it. It mm. was a bad paraphrase. It's the most. That's the most charitable lie, interpretation yeah. you could it put on it. Lie. But it's no more of a lie than um, than the Labour Party for years and years trying to hang Rockstar Economy on Bill English, which he never said. Okay. And yet they. So it's, it's within the normal realm of politics. All right. Let's um, focus on some of the smaller parties at the moment. Uh, according to the latest Colmar Brunton One News poll, Act. Uh, if they maintain their current polling level through to election day, would return with nine MPs after the election. Here's David Seymour's response to that. Look, it's very encouraging. It encourages acts to campaign even harder. Uh, these numbers show what we've been hearing, that people want a roadmap to recovery out of COVID in a reunited country. Liam, why is ACT doing so well? ACT is doing well simply for one reason, which is National is not doing well. Um, you know, uh, people talk about how David Seymour's had this fantastic leadership, and sh but he, he's only saying the same things he said for the last three years, right? The only th thing that's happened is that National has lost its monopoly on the centre-right vote, which is very bad for National. When National regains it, when it gets a bit of momentum again, the ACT Party is not going to be on, on 7%. They'll be back to between 1 and 3. Lila, we saw a speech from Winston Peters at Audiwa uh, in which he said, Māori are, quote, living in the past, 
What did you make of that? Sounds, sounds like um, the view of you know, the rural economy, doesn't it, that's being portrayed by, by Judith Collins. I mean, what we know is that rural leaders, many rural leaders, are way ahead of that National Party position or interpretation. Um, in terms of Winston Peters, I was, um, the thing that really shocked me actually from his speech this week was the statements that he made about their um, interference with the negotiations over the return of Ihu Matau to Tangata Whenua there. Um, apparently, according to him, he refused to use the dis agree to disagree provisions mm. in the coalition agreement and instead said that they would walk from the government if there was a deal. Now, I'm someone who was involved in 1999 in the construction of the agree to disagree provisions. They were put there to enable smaller parties in government to, mm. like, like represent their principles to tell a different story mm. they were not put there to allow the tail to wag the dog as was you know the has clearly been the case it seems with Ihu Matau and that's incredibly disappointing. Okay uh, finally a word from you uh, each very quickly on the Greens it, there was a bit of contention over whether or not Julianne Genter actually said that uh, a wealth tax was a bottom line in any future coalition negotiations. I believe she actually said tax reform is a bottom line, although mm. James Shaw then walked that comment back. What are you making of their position three weeks from the election? Well, I think um, to the extent they have a bottom line, it's a bit like a Winston Peters bottom line. You know, I mean, it was never a serious uh, threat or a serious statement to begin with, so James Shaw is probably more accurate uh, in his walking back. OK, Lila? I think they've had a good week. I mean, they had a good Colmar Brunton poll. They're now, you know, in a comfortable... Well, according to that poll, in a comfortable... <laughs> comfortable by the green standards, yeah. <laughs> I think they will have been helped by... Um, what, you know, a lot of people felt disappointed with the lack of fight from the Prime Minister mm. in the Prime Minister's de in the leaders' debate. Um, I think that will have helped the Greens because I think there are a lot of people kind of shifting, mm. deciding whether to back the Greens or Labour in this election. And, and leaders' debates are known to shift votes within blocks rather than between blocks. Liam here, Lila Hare. Thank you very much for a great panel this morning. After the break on Q&A, online pornography has boomed during COVID-19. Experts say it's causing significant harm to young people, but there is almost no policy debate. Hoki mai, welcome back to Q&A. One of the public health concerns noticeably absent from most of our political parties' policy platforms this year is online pornography. In June, Tracy Martin abandoned efforts to introduce restrictions on pornography access after failing to win support in Cabinet from Labor and the Greens. But sex therapist and educator Joe Robertson says young people have increasingly easy access to violent and aggressive pornography, and images of child sex abuse are sometimes only a few clicks away. Plus, the COVID-19 lockdown has had a big impact on porn access, with the world's biggest porn website recording an 18% spike in activity in March and April. Now, a warning, some of the content and the themes in this conversation are very confronting and certainly inappropriate for younger viewers. Young children should not be watching this. So if you are, please turn off the TV, change the channel, leave the room, something like that. Joe Robertson, Tenakwe, welcome back to Q&A. 
Thank you. How much do young Kiwis access pornography and, and what is pornography like these mm, days? Good question. So what we know from the research very recently in the last two years from the classifications office is that 75% of boys 14 to 17 uh, access porn and 58% of girls 14 to 17. Right. And a quarter of them at 12 or younger. And, you know, that kind of doesn't mean anything unless you know what porn is like now. So the classific classifications office, again, did a piece of research just last year, and that showed 46% of um, the porn that Kiwis engage with had ancestral or family themes, and 35% had some non-consensual behaviour. So that's not great messaging for our young people. Are young people accessing pornography through mainstream sites? Yeah, we historically thought of porn, I mean, adults historically thought of porn as like Playboy and Hustler and what you could get at the DVD store, um, which all was regulated. Uh, but now we, we know that they're seeing it on Instagram, on Reddit, on Tumblr, um, very rarely on YouTube, that's pretty heavily mm. regulated, on Twitter. So all these alternative porn platforms, which parents might not instantly go, oh, they're going to see porn there. Yeah, because when you think of something like Twitter and Instagram, that, that, those are platforms that a lot of kids would be accessing but can you explain how those platforms are sometimes used to link to sites such as OnlyFans and maybe explain to our audience how sites like OnlyFans work? So OnlyFans is like a subscription kind of account where you sign up to follow certain followers mm. um, and it's grown enormously. Mm. We also know that content has really grown through the pandemic as people, young people, are creating their own content to upload. Right. Now, now not all of it is pornography necessarily and not no. all of it so is... So you might get like a great fitness person. Okay. <laughs> um, Depends so you... what you subscribe to. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so we know that on Twitter, for example, there is a lot of underage content. Uh, the BBC did a study recently that showed of the nudes images mm. that they found, uh, a th like a third, over 30%, were what they called under 18-year-olds. Yeah. And, and you recently have done an experiment of sorts where you tried to um, tried to experience what a 13 or 14 year old using Twitter to link to OnlyFans might have experienced. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, there's lots of academic studies which look at the porn sites and the content on them, but barely any that look at those alternative sites which young people access all the time. So what I did is I tried to kind of take an organic experience. What would a 14 year old do if they yeah. were on this platform? So I searched for OnlyFans, not nudes, porn, sex, none of that. Uh, and then the first thing I saw was explicit content, really explicit content. I clicked onto that as maybe a curious person might do, probably what I would have done. And I instantly was on this live sex camming site and down the site I saw what I believe to be child sex abuse material of a primary school age child. And I was just on Twitter, like three seconds and this, before like, that. And a couple of clicks from Twitter. Yeah, and there's not even a box that says, you know, check here if you're yeah. over 18. There's nothing to protect our kids from seeing that. What are you seeing in terms of policy around access to pornography? I'm not seeing a lot. Mm. And I'm really sad about it. You know, Labour put a lot of money into sexual violence, which mm. was fantastic, and I'm not going to minimise that. But there was nothing in there around education. So we just kind of leave our kids and our teenagers high and dry. Good luck. Mm. Just here's the internet. Uh, yeah, I mean, Tracy Martin tried to introduce 
some legislation she couldn't get, well, you know, she, she talked about it at a cabinet level, she couldn't get support from, from Labor and the Greens. Uh, she was looking at what was essentially an opt-in or opt-out mm. option for people when they spoke to their internet service providers. I know that uh, a similar program in the UK attracted criticism, but, but are there any solutions? Are there digital solutions to these problems? There are very quick easy things we could do. You know, just like you were having this conversation about poverty, why can't we move faster? The same thing happens here. We kind of do this tug of war between adult privacy, autonomy and freedom and young people's protection. And adults always win. So adults in that kind of battleground mm. seem to really value their own freedom online rather than, hey, here's these kids who have said they're uncomfortable, who have said they want restrictions, but our freedoms are more important. I mean, parents can can choose to put some restrictions on their own internet, can't they? They can choose that, um, which is mm. great if they do. But we leave it all on the parents, and we abdicate responsibility from a policy and party level. And phones can access data these days. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. true. I think we need an interdisciplinary kind of cross-sector response, which doesn't just leave one section of parents up to do the right thing by their kids. They don't know how the technology works all the time, so how are they just supposed to automatically be, you know, know what to do? You talk to us a little about the impact that, that extreme pornographic images and child sex abuse images are having on people who are accessing those images in New Zealand. At the moment, what happens if you Google a problematic term? Basically nothing. So, so I did a range of searches in the last mm. two weeks um, around what historically has been called, be called, been called child porn, preteen porn, and you get a small banner which says this content is illegal and please report it. If I'm searching for it, I'm unlikely to report it. Right. But then if you search in anything that would indicate you're going to cause harm, like I want to rape someone, um, I want to hurt people, I want to hurt children, basically nothing. You get some Reddit articles, you get some support services for victims, not for perpetrators, and there's no banner that even says, hey, if you need help with this, go to this service, or please don't sexually harm someone. Right. There's nothing. And that can happen. If we do it for child porn, that search, then why can't we just throw one up, which would be the most basic preventative measure. Right, that's the sort of policy that perhaps could be initiated in a, in a very short period of time. Yeah, from what I understand, doing that very small two-sentence banner mm. took like many, many years. Mm. That's not okay. Every year that passes, more kids are engaging with that content. Many, many years ahead of us is not good enough. What is your message then, given we haven't seen a lot of policy from parties in this election campaign so far, what is your message to politicians who are watching this right now and share your concerns? Do more. Get in touch with each other. We need uh, kind of that cross-ministry. We need education, health, social development, all of them to get in a room together and make a plan, educate teachers, health professionals, doctors, um, also parents and whanau. We need it to be across the board, mm -hmm. not just, hey, you over there, try something. All right, Joe Robertson from The Light Project. Thank you so much. Thank you. For more information, advice, and help with digital pornography harm, The Light, uh, Lighthouse, The Light Project. Everybody gets The Lighthouse. Uh, <laughs> go to this website, there it is, uh, inthenow.co.nz. It's been launched with the support of the Ministry of Social Development.
Komotu, that is Q&A for this week. Thank you so much for watching in Namihikia Koto ya Koto Panui. Thank you for your contributions. Tomorrow night, I'm going to host a young voters debate from 7:30 p.m. That's going to be available on the One News website. Then next week on Q&A, we will debate Labor and Nationals economic plans with Paul Goldsmith and Grant Robertson. Until then, thanks to the Q&A team. Hey Terawiki, we will see you next Sunday at nine o'clock. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.